Well, good evening. It's good to see everybody tonight. Uh, I want to start off with uh, two apologies. The first one is uh, the syllabus that I put out uh, a couple of weeks ago had two errors in it. So one was that I had assumed that next Wednesday night the preacher would be preaching in our gospel meeting, but he's going to quit on Tuesday night. So we're having class next Wednesday night. So I had to put that class in there. And also I had a class for uh, the last of the quarter that was on April 31st. And there is no April 31st, of course. So uh, that, that also had to be corrected. So I have some new syllabi uh, on the back bench against the other side of that wall, uh, if you want one. Your old one is fine as far as the progression of lessons. The, the dates are wrong. Other than that, you're good. So, but if you want one with accurate dates, they're back there. Second thing is, uh, apologize for my voice. I've been uh, a little bit of a cold since Sunday. And if it goes out tonight, uh, well... I have to speak and you have to listen to it, so we're companions in the tribulation, okay? We, we, we can get through it, uh, but I do apologize for the voice. I invite you to turn your Bibles to uh, 1 Kings chapter 14 as we continue to study <clears throat> the divided kingdom. Uh, in the 17 periods, it flows right after the United Kingdom and right before Judah being alone in the time of captivity. So here we are in the flow of biblical history in the divided kingdom uh, in this lesson, we're going to talk about the end of Jeroboam, uh, the c conclusion of his reign, and uh, of course, he's the first king of the northern kingdom, and then we're going to look at the end of the reign of Rehoboam, which we touched on a little bit in the last class, and the reign of Abijah, his son. So again, 1 Kings 14, 2 Chronicles 13, we'll be going back and forth between those texts. So what we have so far, uh, and this gets more and more complicated as we we'll go along, uh, what we have so far is in Judah, Rehoboam reigns for 17 years, and then after him, Abijah, we'll see tonight, reigns for only three years, but a lot is done during that reign, and then Asa reigns for 41 years. And as you're looking at that, I'm using some graphics, uh, the basis of which was something Jeff Smith did in the Foundations class last quarter. And um, I realized when I was looking at this today that you could think that BBG might stand for boy, boy, girl, but it stands for bad and good. Okay, not boy, boy, girl. So bad, bad, good. Uh, and then in Israel, you're going to have all bad. Because Jeroboam reigns for 22 years, Nadab, Nadab reigns for two years, and Basha reigns for 24 years. So that's the flow of what we're looking at in the divided kingdom. So we're looking at a period of roughly 50 to 60 years, what's going on in both of these kingdoms in these lessons. We're not going to get through all of those tonight, but that's, that's the section that we're looking at. So starting in 1 Kings 14 then, God is going to judge Jeroboam. And uh, the story starts out in an interesting way, I think. Jeroboam has a son named Abijah. Now, so there are two Abijahs in tonight's lesson. There's Jeroboam's son, and then Rehoboam has a son named Abijah. Rehoboam's son, Abijah, becomes king of the southern kingdom. Jeroboam's son dies prematurely, as we'll see in the lesson tonight. Uh, the name Abijah, if you uh, follow, if you follow uh, Hebrew etymology, as I know many of you do, uh, we probably could figure out what Abijah means because you have the ab part, which everybody knows means, means father, and the jah part, which means Jehovah. So um, Jehovah is my father. 
is what Abijah means. It's interesting that both men were named Jehovah is my father, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. The northern kingdom wasn't following Jehovah at all, yet Jeroboam names his son Abijah. That's just odd, but that's what we have. So Jeroboam's son, Abijah, becomes sick. Chapter 14 and verse 1, at that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, became sick. Verse 2, Jeroboam said to his wife, please arise, disguise yourself, that they may not recognize you as the wife of Jeroboam. And go to Shiloh, indeed, Ahijah, the prophet, is there, who told me that I would be king over this people. <clears throat> so Jeroboam tells his wife to go disguise herself to find Ahijah in Shiloh. Why would he want her to disguise herself? He says not to disguise herself necessarily from Ahijah recognizer, but so that they won't recognize you. In other words, I suppose that means the people won't recognize her. Why would he want her to disguise herself so that the people wouldn't recognize her? Any ideas? Well, he started all this false religion, right? Go ahead, Doug. Now, well, that, that's true, too. And, and there may be, there, there may be some, someone, or more than someone. What do you think, Colton? Yeah. That, that's what I'm thinking, too. He started this false religion, and now he's sending his wife to the guy that he knows is actually a real prophet, because he's the one that prophesied that he would be king, Ahijah. Uh, so he sends his wife to Ahijah. He's got all these false prophets and false priests in the northern kingdom. So he doesn't want that, you know, he's got to do this as they say in the hood on the, on the D-Lo, right? So, so, that, uh, so that nobody knows about this. So he sends his wife uh, disguised uh, in that way. And again, Ahijah, if you go back to 1 Kings 11, 1 Kings 11 was the prophet that told uh, Jeroboam, that God would give him the kingdom, the ten tribes to the north, and all of that. So uh, his wife goes, <clears throat> verse 4, Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose and went to Shiloh. Now Shiloh, you remember, was the place. It's known for what? Where, where, the, Ark of the, where the tabernacle was in the Ark of the Covenant for a long period of time during the time of the judges. Okay, So it's known for that. This is past that time. Uh, but still uh, existing and apparently maybe a place where prophets stayed. Ahijah at least is staying there. So anyway, Jeroboam's wife goes. She goes to Shiloh. Ahijah is old now. He can't see. Uh, his eyes are glazed because his, of his age. Maybe that means cataracts or something like that. Uh, that's what cataracts do. So anyway, the, the Lord tells Ahijah before Jeroboam, Jeroboam's wife even gets there, that uh, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to ask you about her son. He's sick. Thus and thus you shall say to her, for it will be when she comes in that she will pretend to be another woman. And so it was when Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps as she came through the door. He said, come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another person? For I have been sent to you with bad news. I think the better translation may be something like God uh, sends bad news to you, uh, something like that. But in any case... She had come to him. He's got bad news for her, uh, according to the revelation of God. The prophet's going to tell her, in essence, of the very gruesome end of all that belonged to Jeroboam and his house. 
Jeroboam's reign and life would soon come to an end, and not in a good way. But beyond that, his house would suffer extinction, and in a very ignominious way. So he, she's being told of, of that really bad news. We'll look at this in some detail in these verses. You remember, and uh, Ahijah reminds Jeroboam's wife that indeed God had, had blessed Jeroboam with the kingdom. God is the one who had given him the northern kingdom and actually had promised Jeroboam that he would, that kingdom would thrive as long as he followed the Lord and he would have a heritage, a dynasty, if you will, in that kingdom as long as he followed the Lord. He did not follow the Lord, not for 10 seconds. Uh, and so he had broken the covenant with God. Uh, and because of that, uh, God is breaking uh, with him and going to destroy him. So let's look, um, verse 7. Ahijah says, go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you ruler over my people Israel, tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, yet you have not been as my servant David, who kept my commandments, who followed me with all his heart, to do only what was right in my eyes, but you have done more evil than all who were before you. Uh, that kind of statement is going to be made of several bad kings going forward, but still, uh, it seems to be cumulative that they get worse and worse and worse as we go along. But for this statement to be made, you've done more evil than anybody who's come before you. That's, a, that's an awful indictment that comes from God. And, and indeed, of course, as we've already seen, that Jeroboam had done uh, really awful things. Um, God says, you made for yourself other gods, molded images to provoke me to anger. You cast them and you, ca you cast me behind your back. I just, I think of somebody just, you know, kind of throwing something over their shoulder that they're discarding with, with complete disregard for what it is or where it even lands. You know, you're just going to throw it behind your back and forget about it. Uh, Jeroboam had done that, in essence, with God. He just thrown him behind his back and turned his back on him. And, and so for that kind of behavior, which is not what God had asked him to do, God says, Behold, I will bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam, will cut off from Jeroboam every male of Israel, bond and free. I will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam as one takes away refuse until it's all gone. I mean, if you're cleaning out the horse stall, you want to get everything out of there, right? So it's going to be all gotten out, yeah, all of Jeroboam, all of the uh, nastiness of his household is going to be cleaned out by God, uh, as, as you would do. Um, he says, furthermore, the dogs will eat whoever belongs to Jeroboam and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field, for the Lord has spoken. In, in other words, it doesn't matter where your people die. You think about somebody dying in town where there are lots of dogs roaming around, and they might, you know, eat, eat the corpse. Out, you, you die out in the field somewhere, and the vultures are going to get you, and that's, that's what's depicted here. But no um, honorable burial which even back in that time and back even further, uh, you know, the way a person was buried was very important uh, to, to show you know, respect for them and their life and all that sort of thing. But all, all of Jeroboam's descendants are just going to be eaten by the wild animals. No respectable burials at all. Um, so you have God telling him that uh, they're going to be eaten by animals, no burials. And even then, the child, Jeroboam's wife, had come to about is going to die, 
this would be the only one of Jeroboam's children that would have a proper burial, as the Lord explains uh, in verses 12 and 13. You're, you're, when he tells Jeroboam's wife, when your feet enter the city, the child shall die. In other words, when you get back home, the child shall die. And Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. For he's the only one of Jeroboam who shall come to the grave because in him there is found something good toward the Lord God of Israel. I would like to know what that was and the character of this, you would assume to be a young person, uh, that God would have him honored in this way. Just because a younger person dies doesn't mean God doesn't love them. I, I gather that there was something God found very good in this son of Jeroboam. He was going to die young. Jeroboam lived to an older age. He's going to die in shame. Uh, you can't really look at the length of somebody's life, even the way they die necessarily, and determine how in favor or out of favor they are with God. Uh, but this uh, young man was, had something good in him. In verse 14, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam. This is, uh, this is the day. What? Even now. For the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water. He will uproot Israel uh, from this good land which he gave to their fathers. Um, they're going to scatter them beyond the river. Uh, that would be the river Euphrates, because they have made their wooden images, provoking the Lord to anger. So it's not just the calf worship, but also the wooden I images, which here, I think the Hebrew is Asherah, uh, those idols that became prevalent in the land of Israel besides the calf worship. All of that, uh, God sees that, and Israel is going to be condemned and led into captivity. Uh, if we had the map up here, we know Assyria is you know, over the river, um, exactly what would happen uh, to Israel in the days to come, in the time to come. Uh, he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam who sinned and made Israel sin. So that's what God said. Looking then to the end of Israel, not just to the end of Jeroboam, you know, Ahijah predicts his eventual captivity <clears throat> because of Jeroboam's sin. That same prophecy really is an echo of something Moses had said. Y'all will remember in, uh, in Deuteronomy 28 when he told the children of Israel before they ever even entered the land, if you go and serve other gods, God's going to have other nations come up, up, up on you and they're going to carry you off away and you're going to serve gods you didn't know anything about before uh, and life is not going to be good for you. You're going to be scattered all over the place and uh, your existence is going to be miserable. And, of course, that's exactly what happened to Israel, as was prophesied by Moses there, and again prophesied by Ahijah here. So, uh, Jeroboam's son, Abijah, dies. In verses 17 and 18, Jeroboam's wife arose. She departed and came to Terzah. When she came to the threshold of the house, the child died, just as God had said. She got there, and the child dies. And... Just as God had said, they buried him, and all Israel mourned for him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through his servant, Ahijah the prophet. Whatever God says will happen, will happen. Uh, 
uh, whether it be big or small, uh, one day from now or 10,000 years from now, if God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. If he says when it's going to happen, it's going to happen when he says. Uh, that's the power of the word of God. We'll try to talk about that a little bit later. So it happened according to the word of the Lord, as everything does when God speaks, happens according to his word. I want to talk just a little bit about uh, Terza, which is mentioned here as the place now where Jeroboam is residing. You notice uh, the capital had been to this point in Shechem, and we talked about that a little earlier. So the geography is changing just a little bit, and the capital will change. The capital of the northern kingdom changes for a short while, a few kings, to Terza, and then after that to Samaria. So I got to thinking about this today, and I, I thought, well, yesterday actually when I was working on this, uh, I thought, wow, it would really be good if I knew something about Terza and could, you know, maybe show you a picture of it or where it is on a map or something like that. And so I looked up, uh, Leon Malden has a lot of good stuff for geography on, on uh, uh, his website, and I looked up what he had on Terza, and there, in this middle of his little article on Terza, he's got a picture of his son, Seth, who was with me and Leon when we were in Terza in uh, 2016, and I realized I also had a picture of the place as well. I, you know, I'd been there, I spent half a day there, and I forgot about that. So anyway... Here's a, a little bit about Terza. Uh, the picture on the top is a picture I took of sort of an area that had been excavated there. This site was identified as likely, almost certainly now, Terza by uh, William Albright uh, some long time ago, a famous archaeologist. And, uh, but very little work has been done since then. In fact, there's not even a plaque or a sign here. Uh, a lot of sites in Israel have at least some kind of plaque or something that will tell you what you're looking at. There was nothing like that here. This is just, uh, we had to take the bus on a dirt road out in the middle of nowhere to get there. You can see the site here from an aerial view uh, where we would be. Uh, this excavation is right here. This is Tel Terza here. It's not really called that, but that's the idea uh, here. And this is some of the excavation site. So if you look at the information I've got up here, this is where Abijah dies. It's uh, later described as the capital of the northern kingdom during the reigns of Basha, Elah, Zimri, and Omri. Uh, so you've got four more kings that are going to have this place as their capital. I might say that it's not a very defensible place, uh, not great from a strategic standpoint. Uh, there's, it's just out in the middle of a valley and be easily surrounded by uh, armies of foreign countries, but it'll come into the story now uh, with several kings that will be coming up on uh, before, before very long. In uh, reference to other places, it is about seven miles north of Shechem, north-northeast of Shechem. Uh, it's another several miles north from there to Samaria. So all three capitals are not far from one another. Uh, it's sort of central Israel. Uh, and, and as I said, several events with upcoming kings will be occurring here in Terza. All right, that leads us then to look back at the southern kingdom for a while. We already uh, broached this a little bit Sunday. In fact, I think I used part of this slide on Sunday to talk about the end of Rehoboam's reign. We'll just review that really quickly. Uh, Rehoboam, after his third year, had become unfaithful, 
And so God sent Shishak, who's the pharaoh of Egypt, to punish him. Uh, Rehoboam turned around a little bit, showed some humility, and God spared Judah as a whole, although uh, the, the nation was uh, sort of put under the thumb of Shishak, and they served him and paid tribute to him, including some uh, very nice articles out of the temple and Jerusalem. There was constant friction between Rehoboam uh, and uh, Jeroboam uh, in their final years. And then Rehoboam is die, dies and is buried. And his son, also named Abijah, as we've said, becomes king. So most of that we talked about Sunday morning. So that brings us to uh, 1 Kings 15 and 2 Chronicles chapter 13. In 1 Kings 15 and verse 1, in the 18th year of, the, of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam became king over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Maacah, the granddaughter of Abishalom. And he walked in all the sins of his fathers, of his father, rather, which he had done before him. His heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father, David. So uh, Abijah, like his father, is unfaithful to the Lord. Uh, yet, uh, for David's sake, uh, God gives him a lamp in Jerusalem. Look at 15 and verse 4. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by setting up his son after him and by establishing Jerusalem. So although uh, Abijam is a bad king, as Rehoboam was, uh, because of David and God's efforting to do all that he can to make his covenant with David still good, um, because of David, uh, he's going to allow Abijah's son, Asa, to uh, flourish in Jerusalem. And he, he does that. Um, but looking then at the little bit that we know about the reign of Abijah, from this point we're going to go over to Second uh, Chronicles 13. We mentioned already I don't know where that went. Hmm. Uh, we mentioned already that Second Chronicles, um, this is a quick review of everything we've talked about so far. And that Second Chronicles deals more especially with what goes on in Judah uh, and First Kings more with what goes on in Israel. There is overlapping, and sometimes that'll be the opposite. But most of the time, uh, Chronicles will tell us much more about what's going on in, uh, in Judah. So here we have Abijah becoming king. He was unfaithful, yet for David's sake, his son Asa would thrive. Second Chronicles 13, Abijah assembles his army of 400,000. That's a pretty big army in Ephraim against Jeroboam's army of 300,000. Those are two really large forces. Um, 
before the battle ever gets going, though Abijah stands in verse 4 on uh, Mount Zemariah, which is in the mountains of Ephraim, and addresses both Jeroboam and the Israelites, and uh, kind of tells them what for, uh, explains, you know, the situation historically and the sins of the northern kingdom, the relative faithfulness of the southern kingdom, which is not really faithful, but much more so than the northern kingdom, and uh, in essence says that we, Judah, the southern kingdom, we're taking our stand with God, and all of y'all have rejected God. That's the bottom line of what uh, Abijah is going to say. So here are some of the things that are mentioned in this text in verse, uh, verses 4, starting in verse 4 and then through verse 12. He says, verse, into verse 4, Hear me, Jeroboam, and all Israel. Should you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the dominion over Israel to David forever, to him and his sons, by a covenant of salt? So dominion is given to David, God-ordained rulers of his people, by a covenant of salt. Somebody tell me what it means. A covenant of salt. It's a phrase that's used uh, a few times in Scripture. Any ideas? What's salt known for? Properties. What's one of its properties? Preserving. Yeah, so a covenant of salt, uh, we believe, represents the idea it's a perpetual covenant or one that would be preserved, not just one that would be cast aside lightly. So it's, it's a covenant of salt. It's an enduring kind of covenant, and everything we've seen so far indicates indeed that God wishes on his part at least, to do everything he can to keep that covenant intact. Uh, of course, the people don't cooperate with him. Uh, nonetheless, there is that. And then, uh, although it was a, a covenant of salt, yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the servant of Solomon, the son of David, rose up and rebelled against his Lord. And then worthless rogues gathered to him and strengthened themselves against Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. And Rehoboam was young and inexperienced and could not withstand them. So that's all, you know, historical fact, uh, how Jeroboam came as a practical matter uh, into the kingdom and into reign in the northern kingdom. And, now, and, and so Abijah goes on in verse 8, and he says, And now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord. What, what Abijah is doing, in essence, is saying that we're the real kingdom. We, God made a covenant with David. We're, the, we're the, the real chosen people. You guys only exist because God's punishing us. Uh, and, and you've done terribly, uh, but we're the, we're the true kingdom of the Lord uh, in the hands of the sons of David. You are a great multitude, and with you are the gold calves which Jeroboam made for you as God. So he's pitting Judah as the chosen kingdom of God, the lineage of David, against Israel, who's following calf worship, and a king who was a supplanter. And... Uh, he goes on to describe some of the behavior. Uh, Jeroboam had continued to resist God with idolatry. And then in verse 9, Have you not cast out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron, and the Levites, made for yourselves priests like the peoples of the lands? Well, that's exactly what they'd done. They just gutted the priesthood in the, in the northern kingdom, uh, drove all the true priests out, were using just every, you know, guy that came down the road could be a, a priest of the golden calves in the northern kingdom. Uh, the way Abijah describes it, 
whoever comes to consecrate himself with a young bull, seven rams may be a priest of things that are not gods. It's kind of like those uh, online diplomas you can get. You know, if you just pay the money to the site, they'll send you your diploma, uh, something like that. That's, that's kind of how this was. You just pay your money to, you know, whatever the priest or whatever, and you can become a priest uh, back in the days of Jeroboam. But as for, the, for us, comparing now Judah to what Israel was doing, as for us, the Lord is our God. We have not forsaken him. That wasn't entirely true, but we have not forsaken him. And the priests who minister to the Lord are the sons of Aaron, and the Levites attend to their duties. That was all true. Uh, so they did have the legitimate priesthood, and they were doing uh, their work, and they burn to the Lord every morning and every evening, burnt sacrifices, sweet incense. They also set the showbread in order. They do all of this uh, related to uh, the temple, and all of that's there. And so uh, Abijah says, now look, the Lord is with us. He's not with you. And he says at the end of verse 12, O children of Israel, do not fight against the Lord God of your fathers, for you shall not prosper. You forsaken God, he's with us. Do not fight against the Lord. You will not prosper. Now all the while, Abijah is speechifying and bloviating, uh, Jeroboam is planning to uh, attack him from the rear. And so he sends forces around and the armies of Israel surround, in essence, the armies of Judah. And uh, they're between a rock and a hard place. And Judah realizes what is happening as Abijah ends his speech. Uh, Jeroboam ignored every last thing Abijah said and sets this ambush up, and Judah is trapped. But Judah cries out to the Lord for help, and as a result, God fought for them and uh, routed the army of Jeroboam in a big way. How many did we say he'd started with? 800,000? And the text tells us that Israel lost 500,000 men and several villages in this, what by any measure would be a a huge battle and a monumental defeat of the northern kingdom and, and one that would weaken them for a long time to come, as the text will tell, tell us. Jeroboam never recovers from this. Uh, and this is sort of the beginning of the end for him, it would, and that comes pretty quickly. Um, let's, let's read a few verses here, uh, picking up in verse 14. Judah looked around and sees... Uh, how they're surrounded, and in verse 14, they cried out to the Lord, and the priests sounded the trumpets. Men of Judah gave a shout. Uh, it happened that God struck Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. So God fights for them uh, and wins this great victory. And the text says that Abijah pursued Jeroboam, verse 19 now, and took cities from him, Bethel with its judges, what do you know about Bethel? What's there? Golden calf. This had to hurt, right? Judah gets control of that for a while. Uh, he takes Bethel with its villages, uh, Jeshana with its villages, Ephraim with its villages, and so on and so forth. So Jeroboam did not recover strength again in the days of Abijah, and the Lord struck him and he died. We don't know uh, what Jeroboam was stricken with uh, or how he was stricken, but struck by the Lord and died uh, probably in short order. 
Abijah continues to rise in power and uh, multiplies his house by marrying a, a lot of women and fathering a lot of children. Um, sort of a mini approach like Solomon had had, I suppose, to strengthen himself. But uh, he only reigns for three years, as we've already said. And as we've already indicated, and God had prophesied through Ahijah that Asa becomes king. We don't know a lot more about Abijah's reign. Ahijah, uh, or rather Asa becomes king in Jeroboam's 20th year. And Asa is going to reign for 41 years. And Asa is uh, the first really good king in the period of the divided kingdom. Uh, does a, a lot that's very, very good. We don't study him much, but don't have a whole lot of information about him. But uh, he, he does very well, not not. He's not the reformer that Josiah was, but uh, would be later, but uh, he does very well. He's a good king, and he walks in David's ways, according to chapter 15 and verse 11. Back in 1 Kings now is where we are. His reforms put away people, put away his father's idols, and the altars on the high places. Now, there seems to be a, a bit of a contradiction uh, in the text here, if you compare 1 Kings 15, 12 through 14 to 2 Chronicles 14, 3 through 5, uh, one says he did not put away the high places, but the other says he did put away the high places, but it, it specifies in the cities. And I think that's the difference. Uh, apparently, the, those high places, you know, in the countryside, he did not take care of, but ones that were in the cities, perhaps he did. That's the only way I can uh, reconcile that. Uh, so one of the texts says he took care of those. But anyway, a pretty good reformer, getting rid of a lot of the idolatry that was going on, walking in David's ways. Uh, he refortifies the cities that uh, earlier Shishak had, uh, had uh, taken, uh, bolsters the army, and you have a figure there in Second Chronicles 14, verses 6 through 8, where the forces of uh, Judah now become 300,000 in Judah and 280,000 in Benjamin, which is a pretty large fighting force for a little nation of any period. Uh, so they'd be strong, relatively safe, and very peaceful during the first 10 years at least of uh, Asa's reign. Everything was at peace according to Second uh, Chronicles 14, verse 1, 10 years of peace in Judah. Such a pretty interesting time period. This is going to be typical now as we go forward. We'll come across, we'll have to cover, you know, two or three or four kings sometimes in a single class period. We're covering a number of years very quickly. We're not told in Scripture a lot of detail. that We are told. We'll stop and look at and learn the lessons from those. But the point of all of this, I think, is it has to be taken uh, in aggregate. You have to look at the big picture of the divided kingdom. The whole thing is a message about how God's people were behaving and how God punished them for the way they were behaving. And, and it's, all of this information is really necessary, I think, and inspired to, to make that large point for us. You know, what's the, what's the title of the Waldron's book on this section? Till There Was No Remedy. And so there's this period of time, this long period of time with all of these many evil kings bad things going on till there was no remedy. So it's given, the whole point of this is to give that big picture. Why did God you know, send 
Assyria and then Babylon against his people? Why did they go into captivity? Why did he destroy these, the, his two, these two nations of his? Well, it's because of their behavior, because of the way they acted. All right, so some lessons to learn. Uh, lots of them, really, but just a couple that I wanted to point out. Uh, one we mentioned, that when God speaks something, whatever he says happens. This is said in a lot of different ways in Scripture. Uh, it doesn't matter how many years have gone past uh, concerning his second coming in Second Peter chapter 3. One day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. God made a promise that uh, the Lord's coming back. The earth's going to be destroyed. Somebody says, well, it hasn't happened yet. Uh, so what? You know, well, it's been 2,000 years since Peter wrote that. Well, so what? It's been two days to God, right? His word is sure because he cannot lie. Uh, that's part of his goodness. We were talking about Sunday morning. God is so good and he cannot lie. And the scripture cannot be broken. Jesus said uh, in passing, really, in John 10 and verse 35, the scripture cannot be broken. It just cannot be broken. If a scripture says something is going to happen, absolutely, it's going to happen. It's God's word. Uh, so we have to learn to respect and obey whatever God has said. Because it's sure to happen. God said to Isaiah, my word will not return to me void. It will accomplish what I send it out to do. That's the power of the word of God. The second lesson, just briefly, is if you stand with God, God will fight for you. you will fight, we'll see this lesson multiple times in the period of the divided kingdom. If you'll be on God's side, he'll be on your side, and he'll fight the battle for you. If you'll just trust him and, uh, and go his way. That's a, that's a great lesson from this section. All right, any questions or further thoughts before we quit? All right, the uh, revised syllabus, again, they're on the pew on the other side of that wall if you want a revised syllabus. Thanks. And we are having this class, Lord willing, Sunday morning. So, and that's on the syllabus.